the most important thing for me was to try and be ethical and honest and and to try in the public profile, which was unwelcome but necessary, to try and be reassuring as well as honest. Welcome to episode 14 of Contain This, brought to you by the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security. I'm Stephanie Williams, Australia's Ambassador for Regional Health Security. Today we continue a special series of podcasts with Indo-Pacific health leaders. I will bring you frank conversations with leaders in the Pacific and Southeast Asia about how they are facing current challenges, making decisions amidst uncertainty, brokering consensus to provide scientific advice to governments, and how they as individuals adapt and adjust their leadership style during a crisis such as COVID-19. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Australia's Secretary for the Department of Health, Dr. Brendan Murphy. Now, prior to his appointment as Secretary in July of this year, Dr. Murphy was Australia's Chief Medical Officer. And it is his experience in this role that we'll focus on during the interview. Now, Dr. Murphy trained as a nephrologist, specialist in diseases and conditions that affect the kidneys. He was formerly the Chief Executive Officer of Austin Health and the Chief Medical Officer and Director of Nephrology at St Vincent's Health, both institutions in his hometown of Melbourne, Victoria. Brendan, welcome to Contain This. So I want to go back to the beginning, Brendan, in the early days of 2020, mm. as we learned about the then-called Wuhan mm. coronavirus, now SARS-CoV-2, that causes COVID-19. It's fair to say we knew little about the virus and the disease, and need, but needed to take action. During that early period, especially as our understanding was scant, you brought together chief health officers from states and territories to the Australian Health Protection Principal Committee to make recommendations to government. During that time, how did you approach the role of chair of a committee to reach consensus decisions amid so much uncertainty? So that, I think, was probably the most important part of my role was that chair, because I'm unashamedly not a public health expert. My background was in nephrology, immunology and hospital management. But we, I had a group of Un- wonderful experts, the, the state and territory chief health officers, and a lot of other experts. Uh, people, I brought some extra people on to some modelers like Jody McVernon and Alan Cheng. Um, and it was uh, at times quite uh, a robust discussion to reach consensus because there were sometimes different views, but on every single policy position, we took to our respective governments and then later to the National Cabinet. I think there was only one occasion when there was a, one dissenting voice and we we really used an evidence-based approach and discussed things and came to a conclusion. And we met pretty much every day for two hours for, for nearly six months. Um, and that was a challenge, but the collegiality uh, was fantastic. And, you know, there are some positives coming out of this terrible time, but the 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 federation at a health level has worked generally pretty well and that chief health officer group are a wonderful group of leaders. And and just like your household name, as is now AHPPC, often people don't fully understand that this is a group of people who have actually worked together during crises for some time. To what extent did that support their, your, your chairing and that real coming ease with which they came together? Yeah. I'm not saying it was easy, but, you know. 
No, no, I think the relationships were fantastic. And we're a group that over the previous three years, bef- I, I, I do I remember when, when Minister Hunt suggested that I talked about me becoming Secretary of the Department in January, I said, you know, I've done the CMO job for three years, or well, it's late December, I think, um, and I hadn't had a public health crisis. <laughs> and uh, he blames me for that. Um, but, but we had um, uh, that group, we, we've worked together for three years and we, we met, used to meet regularly, generally face-to-face in the old days, but often emergency teleconferences when issues arose. And I would probably take a phone call from one of them every other day. You know, there's an issue that came up and we've always had a good uh, a basis of openness. You know, hey, I've got an issue with meningococcal disease or I've got an issue with flu or something. So, so it was a very good relationship. And I do remember Chris Bagley, my predecessor, telling me the most important thing for the CMO to do is to maintain good relationships with the state and territory chief health officers. And I always sought to do that. Sometimes people expect in a crisis that, that those decisions have to be taken sort of definitively and, um, and that leadership by committee doesn't always work. And in, in a certain, to a certain extent, your experience of HPPC counter, sort of contradicts that. In a sense, but in, in the, the practical reality of a federation where the Commonwealth has a coordinating role, but the public health effector arm is in the states and territories who are sovereign entities in their own right, it has to be thus. So it might have been easier sometimes for me to make a a, a unilateral decision, but it would not be enforceable uh, unless I had that collective ownership of it, because that's that's the challenges of the federation and 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 some of the benefits, because you get that collective wisdom as well. So, in the early part of this year, we were needing you and the committee to not only respond to the crisis at hand, but plan and anticipate a range of uncertain scenarios. Mm. How did you manage to do those two things concurrently? Yeah, and I think we were very aware of that. So, so we had to plan for the worse and res- for for what we did never want to happen. So we early days we sat down and planned for what would happen if we had a situation where we had widespread community transmission. You know, something like uh, uh, the UK or Northern Italy, where you know hospitals could have been overwhelmed. We would have had tens of thousands of deaths, hundreds of thousands of deaths. Um, and so we did a lot of work on and we on getting PPE supplies, one of the biggest challenges. Um, we did a lot of work on ICU capacity, what was realistic and practical. We bought several thousand ventilators. Uh, we looked at uh, all of those uh, capability issues of the, of the health system. Um, we then, you know, looked at how our testing capability could be expanded, and so we we, we prepared ourselves for a, for, a, and that took quite a few months. But at the same time, we had to say, well, we've only got a small amount of transmission of this virus; it's pretty much all imported. How that? How are we going to stop it? So we we were talking, took some immediate actions to stop it. I want to change tack a bit and think about how leaders reflect on their own leadership during Mm. a crisis. Now it's clear and much said by many, not just me, that you did a terrific job as CMO guiding us through the first phase of Australia's response to COVID. How did you know you were doing a good job? 
Did you seek feedback? Were you offered feedback? Did you change things along the way? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I did get feedback um, from my political masters. You know, they would often, um, you know, after the weekly and sometimes twice weekly press conference with the PM, he would often say that went well. <laughs> and uh, um, my ministers, Minister Hunt, uh, very, very strong on uh, positive feedback, will often send you a, a message and uh, very, very, uh, and, and it will often say when, you know, I, I perhaps wouldn't have done that, <laughs> um, you know, and, uh, but I, I'm lucky in a way is that I'm not a very insecure person. Um, I'm probably my own harshest judge. I often, you know, will finish a, a press conference or a meeting or a cabinet meeting or something and say, yeah, perhaps I shouldn't have said that, but often then when I seek feedback, people haven't felt that it was as negative as I thought it. So, so look, I, you know, I think the most important thing for me was to try and be ethical and honest and, and to try in the public profile, which was unwelcome but necessary, to try and be reassuring as well as honest. You know? And that was sort of quite hard because a lot of very frightened people, including in our health professions and uh, a lot of you know, diverse and conflicting opinions flying out there from terrified people sitting in, in, at home on Zoom. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was to try and get a, an evidence-based middle ground and, and try and reassure the public was, was a challenge too, yeah. You certainly have a very calm and authentic mm. manner. It was commented on by many, a very trusted top doc. When you think about that, culture of leadership um, and reflection, how did, you, how did you translate that to the people that you're working with in the Department of Health mm. in trying to keep a, you know, that focus on ethical and honest and mm. keeping on going when actually individually we were all responding in different ways yeah. to, our, to the crisis? Yeah, I think really important is a couple of things. One is recognition. You know, people, people will go a huge distance if you are powered by recognition and acknowledgement. Um, so, you know, I remember one of my senior managers who'd uh, worked, I reckon she got a little four-year-old kid and she'd worked, uh, I think probably like I had done, 30, hour, 30 days straight without seeing a kid. And so I remember buying when sending someone at my ear out to buy some toys for her kid or something, and just sort of little things that, and just telling people how well they're doing, and 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 forcing people to have some time off. You know, just everyone thought they were indispensable in the big crisis, and just saying, "Well, you're not that indispensable. You'll fall over." So go away for a couple of days. So, and again, you know, just if there was a. A difficult political discussion to have with another department or uh, another government. I would try and do that myself um, and uh, have the difficult conversations and, and sort of try and free people up to do the constructive work. So, so I don't know. I mean, I, th I think it's just uh, I, I don't have a, a leadership philosophy other than that the most that to value the people. In your team, um, get good people around you and recognise and acknowledge them, 
and also trust them to make mistakes and own their mistakes for them rather than blame. You know, I, I, hate, a, I hate blame cultures, the worst things. Yeah. yeah. Um, Australia's part of the region and I know you've had in the last few months a number of discussions with some of your counterparts mm. in the Indo-Pacific region. What elements of Australia's response do you think are relevant and transferable to the developing countries of our region? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question because, um, I mean, there are some countries in our region that have done better than we have. I look at Vietnam, you know. Um, now, it's probable that the Australian public may not have um, tolerated the, the measures that Vietnam took, but you'd have to say, they, I mean, they've got a little outbreak now. Everyone's got, got their second waves, but, um, but they, they really you know, had a, only a few hundred cases and, and clamped down really well by a very draconian isolation and contact tracing and they, they put every primary contact in government-operated quarantine for two weeks. I can't see the Australian public living with that, so that was interesting. Um, I think it's really worrying for those countries um, that don't have, in the not a middle-income country, lower-income countries, um, I'm very, I'm anxious about Indonesia. I'm anxious about those countries that don't have widespread testing and public health capability, um, or um, advanced, you know, healthcare systems. With I mean, with I mean, our our survival rate in ICU is very good in Australia, and you know, and people we've often talked about sending ventilators to countries, and I wonder, you know, there's not much point sending a ventilator unless the people who can use them and their hospitals to put them in. So I think, um, you know, it, there's no question that the physical distancing measures work in any country, but again, it's very hard when you've got people in overcrowded accommodation. Um, and uh, I, it's really it's really hard to translate a high-income country response to, to a low-income country response in some ways, and it's sort of um, tragic that a low-income country might come out of this more quickly than a high-income country because they'll they're used to tolerating um, you know death rates and things that we wouldn't be prepared to tolerate, and and the younger population, as in every country, will sail through this. But I think the the most important lesson we've learnt in our in our second wave, which is primarily in Victoria, is that. This virus is so rapidly spread in fit, young, healthy people who who are well, and uh, and 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 that if you don't get into culturally and linguistically diverse communities with communications packages and different strategies, uh, that's where the, I think a lot of the second waves of Singapore had the same experience. The first first wave in most countries. Well, in a lot of countries, was return travellers, yeah. and they're often higher-income people, more compliant and more easy to get at. And once it gets into different communities, it's a very different different challenge to deal with. And I think we can see that in our region, where the Pacific, following Australia's lead, and also seeing the threat for themselves, swift border closure, mm. um, with big consequences for their economies and livelihoods, mm. but still a protection from COVID, and almost an inevitability once we reach an, a border opening if mm. the hands are forced um, 
knowing that we've had potentially a bit more time to prepare, but on the back of systems that are fundamentally weaker. And I mm. know certainly in the region um, the health leaders in the Pacific have valued opportunities to connect mm. with mm. you and with, with officials in the department, mm. um, if nothing else, but to continue to share experience mm. and, and be mm. in partnership. Um, my last question is a personal one, mm. um, which is really when the demands are endless on you but mm. your personal resources are finite, mm. either in a 24-hour period or in a 30-day period with no break, I'm interested in, in how you kept going. Yeah, it was, it was quite tough because mo most of my um, sort of relaxation things I couldn't do, the gyms were closed. Um, I was, I've been having singing lessons up for the last few years until, until COVID hit. That was in Melbourne. Seeing my two granddaughters is one of my biggest delights. I've hardly seen them for four or five months other than on, camp, on the screens. I used to go back to Melbourne every weekend and my, and my wife has been up here in Canberra you know, the last few months, which has been great. So I just kept going because you, know, you, you feel this enormous sense of purpose that you know, whilst there's a crisis or a problem that's unsolved. I've seen it just in the last few weeks with aged care in Victoria. I mean, I've been essentially, you know, even though I've been Secretary of the Department of Health for a while, I was doing bed management in aged care facilities in Victoria at 11 o'clock on a Sunday night because there is a crisis and if there's no, res no pathway to resolution and you're the buck stops with you, you've just got to find a pathway. So... So it's been hard. I, I've been pretty tired at times. Uh, there was a period, you know, sort of most of late May and June when things were pretty quiet where I was getting my weekends back and being able to sort of go for some walks and, you know, even watch a bit of Netflix and read a novel. But the last few weeks, again, it's been really back to full pressure. And I'm, I'm very confident that, you know, we'll get on top of the Victorian measures that have been recently announced will will bring that under control and we'll get back under control but it's it's been a uh, it's a roller coaster ride uh, and uh, I just um, you know the, the most important thing is to do everything we can to protect those people who are vulnerable to severe disease well, I knew we were in safe hands with you as CMO and we are in safe hands with you as a secretary. And had I known about the singing, I would have said we get a better audio here so we could have an impromptu um, performance, but I won't a, put you on the spot. And I'm not a very good singer yet. <laughs> yet, being the operative word. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, yeah. Brendan. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr Brendan Murphy, the Secretary of Australia's Department of Health, formerly Australia's Chief Medical Officer. I'm Stephanie Williams, Australia's Ambassador for Regional Health Security. Thank you for joining me on the Contain This podcast for this week's launch of the Indo-Pacific Health Leaders series. Over the coming months, I look forward to talking to a range of people in different countries in our region to explore how public health leaders are facing the challenges of responding to COVID-19.